Hi everyone, I'm Madeline Park, stylist and vintage fashion hound. I believe everything has a story, whether it be clothes or the people that wear them. As we're forced to sit still, I want to travel through the stories of people in other places and explore how they're stepping out with a renewed sense of style. So this is Style Stories Stepping Out, a series which continues to share stories of creative people with a strong sense of style, but from places that we'd love to see and where we'd rather be. Today, I'm stepping out with Maylin Morling, Danish publishing powerhouse and founder of Copenhagen fashion label La Bagatelle. At the tender age of 26, Maylin saw herself as editor-in-chief of Elle magazine and has since led the helm of several fashion titles, including costume and her own publication cover. Practically Danish royalty in the design and fashion circle, Maylin is an authority on the Danish woman and how she dresses. Whether she's talking about her style, La Bagatelle or Copenhagen Fashion Week, the story is always one of respect, reverence and craftsmanship. And it's this sense of responsibility to both community and environment, harmonising with a point of privilege and a hard-working strength that underpin the story of Maylin and Danish women alike, ensuring their effortlessly chic style is tailored to stand out while always fitting in. I hope you can sit back, relax and enjoy listening to Maylin's story. Hello! <laughs> we made it! <laughs> How are you? Oh, good, good. I'm excited to speak to you. I'm so excited to speak to you. I know it's been a, a few weeks that we've been trying to get this on the calendar. Uh, uh, and but so... so persistent. A big pattern? I thanks for being so persistent. You really made it happen. <laughs> I'm very tenacious when I want, want to be. Um, Maylene, I was just listing um, some of your various achievements in your career history, including being <laughs> editor-in-chief at Elle magazine at the age of 26, uh, starting your own publishing house, and now your new baby is um, your fashion label, La Bagatelle. Uh, tell me at any point if I'm not pronouncing anything correctly. No. <laughs> Um, and I, wa- I want to really delve into your career and um, your new project. But as I do with all my interviews, I like to start at the beginning. Uh, you're obviously a very hard worker and have a lot of dedication to your career. And I want to know, my first question to you is, um, was working hard and that sense of diligence and dedication a really central part of uh, your childhood and how you grew up? Yeah, I think, I, I think for sure. I, I was, I, um, I grew up in Denmark till I was fourteen, and then my family and I we moved to England, and I, I went to European school there, uh, where it was all about like, you know, I was Danish, I was stuck in Oxford, I didn't really speak the language that well at all, and I remember the first day at school I had Latin, and I had Latin in English, and I didn't understand Latin, of course, and I hardly understood English, so that was kind of uh, the beginning of okay, if you want to make like get through the year you really have to put in the hours so i think i'm um i'm from a background where you you kind of try and do your best uh, and and that means putting in the hours Uh, and i think i'm the same with my daughters as well i think if you're privileged you have to really make an effort um but it's also you know it's like it's more fun putting in the hours doing fashion than it is doing putting in the hours doing maths you know so it's not like i'm putting hours everywhere I just like 
if you work with things that you really enjoy, you don't think of it as a, like something that's tough. You just uh, want to get on with it because it's so much fun. So who instilled that sense of discipline in you and, and the rest of your family? My mother. <laughs> no, <laughs> parents. I think it's the whole... Um, yeah, I think it's. I think it comes from childhood. Uh, I think it's uh, my parents were like, if you do something, it's so, if something is worth doing, it's worth doing it right. Uh, and I think that there is a. This sounds terribly old-fashioned, but it's like there is. Uh, there is such um, satisfaction in doing something that you, that you know you've done your best, and you can actually that it shows. I think that that's part of it. And I. Yeah. Think like who wants to be mediocre? You know, if you want to do something, you want to do well. Um, so I think that's it. But I was pretty mediocre in lots of stuff, and I'm don't get me talking about PE or anything like that. But like, uh, yeah, I think the the things that I, I enjoy doing, I want to I want to like excel at it. <laughs> was was your mum and dad were they quite entrepreneurial? Yes, definitely. They had yeah. lots of going on they still do so so I think it's like family spirit you have to like get on with it and I yeah. think it's a really healthy way of life it's a really healthy thing that you think that you don't you know you and I think that's a lesson really for everyone is that you you whatever you do when you start out you don't have to spend your whole life doing it you can do different things and La Bagatelle is a really good example of that I mean I'm a historian by by degree but I worked in fashion, like from the publishing point of view, and now I'm like from more of the creating point, like creating a collection and doing clothes and other things. So it's like you don't have to just do one thing. If you're stuck in something that you don't really like, do something else. You know, yeah. yeah. Like, it, you, okay, you like be adventurous. You have that one life. Maybe we have more. I don't know. But I mean, <laughs> most. Of, I really do believe that. Like you can do many things in life. You don't have to just do the that one thing. Yeah, I, I read somewhere that your you've said um, that your father bought you and your sister up like you were boys. Um, yeah. He, yeah. Did, is that? Yeah. Sorry, was that? Fed up on me. No, it's, <laughs> it's true. I, my dad was. Um, he's he's. I mean, he loves the fact that he has girls. I don't think he, you know, he. it was never like he wanted boys. And I'm like, my, I have two daughters and my sister's oldest child was a daughter. And then when she finally had a son, my dad was like, what are we supposed to do with him? Because he really adores girls. But um, but it's true that we were brought up that, you know, in the sense that they are, that there is nothing we can't do and, uh, and pretty much just get on with it. So it's... Uh, you know, I go shooting with him and I know what a hammer is and yeah, it's, and I think it's, and I, I'm the same with my daughters. I think it's pretty important that you teach girls that you can do it all. Um, yeah. have to depend on anyone. And it's great if a man comes along, that's perfect because you can use him for romance and love, but you don't have to <laughs> need him for practical stuff that you're supposed to take care of your, on your own. Yeah. But, but your father was a real sight of that sense of confidence and like yeah uh, he, and he I, I think it's um he totally believed and still does believe in us and know that uh, you know if, if if there's something we wanted to do he had total confidence that we could do it and yeah. I think a really important thing that you can instill in your children is that you believe in them 
and that you know that they have the that whatever they have inside of them is good enough and you can do pretty much whatever you want in life. Of course, yes. we're not entirely true, but believing that you can, that there are, that only you set up your own limits, that's, that's a really good way of going about things because then you really can make the impossible happen. And I think yeah. you can make the impossible happen if you... But I, I, when I was preparing for our interview, I was really trying to build a picture of what, a, a childhood does look like in Denmark typically and um and you know you just mentioned like your dad's taken you shooting at, like you know you you had these activities it, it generally would you describe like the the a, a, an average childhood as really being quite connected to land and outdoorsy and pursuing these kind of outdoor activities as definitional points um I think what um I grew up in England and I grew up in Denmark. And I think for uh, children growing up in Denmark, they definitely have a much greater sense of freedom. Just the fact that uh, they're off at school so, like in the early afternoon, which gives them quite a few hours to do do other stuff, to be with friends, to do like extracurricular activities. Uh, I have one daughter who, who used to go riding a lot, the other dances a lot. Um, so there's lots of time to do other stuff. And, you know, they're all on a bike going from one friend to another. So it's it's pretty like, yeah, mom, see you later. Dad, which is good, you know, because I didn't have that. I, I grew up way out in the country where if ever I had to go somewhere, it would involve my mom taking me in a car or my dad taking me in a car. So so that sense of uh, freedom, I think, um, is, is, is great and has great value. And we really do appreciate it. It's not something we take for granted. We know that from you know friends and you know children watching tv then they we know that, that it's not like that everywhere else in the world and i think um even cities here are smaller cities so um copenhagen's the biggest city and has a million people living here so like it, it people are pretty spread out that nature does um connecting with nature doing stuff has has great importance um I have to say, going shooting with my dad, you know, you have to be 16 to go shooting in Denmark. So I was yeah. <laughs> But it, 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 ice skating in the winter and like um, when whenever there's snow, you go, you go skiing and uh, it's like lots of people doing sports outside the whole time. So, yeah, like I think being outside matters. Of course, yeah. it's pretty cold and pretty dark. So, you know, it's... <laughs> it, in winter, it's four. It's dark at four o'clock in the afternoon. So, of course, it's pretty. There's a limit to how much you can do. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's like, for me personally, being outside and taking my dog Eddie for a walk, or or I go swimming every year, every day, all year round in the sea, which is like a, a calm, natural, and depressant. So I think you know we try and connect with nature as much as possible. Uh, I would most outdoorsy um, nation in the world, but uh, but we have sea all around us, which I think matters. And do you think that um, that connection to nature has a, a a connection to the the way that design and creativity is fostered in Denmark and Scandinavia? I think what matters is the light. Um, the fact that if you look at Scandinavian furniture or art or fashion, it's uh, 
pretty subtle in its colors. Um, and I think that's very much the, the colors of the country. You know, it's, it's pretty subtle in the winter. It's, it's like we perfected the art of gray. Um, <laughs> You, know, you have like the the golden fields and the blue sky, but it's it's the palette. It's not like tropical, and that shows in everything that we do. Um, so I think, and the fact that um, we're not like if you look at our nature, it's not extravagant. It's restraint, and I think that is part of um, our design culture. That it is yes. restraint. And, and of course, in recent years, we've got Noma, the restaurant that now has three Michelin stars. It's very exciting. But, um, <laughs> and, you know, we have uh, like the food scene all of a sudden is, is brilliant here. But in the past, you didn't really go to Denmark to eat. You know, you, 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 we had fun. Originally, we had art and then we had furniture design. And then fashion came along and then food came along. So now we have quite a creative scene, which is really great. Um, yeah. But I think when it comes to nature, I think it's more the restraint and the colors that, that shows in, in, in the creative part of what we do. And, and you mentioned you, you lived in, a, like, um, in the country. Did that, did that sense of freedom and even that color palette, do you feel like that informed your sense of creativity developing as a child? Yes. And, you know, something else. I, I I spent a lot of time on horseback in my whole childhood, and I think that whole uh, craftsmanship that goes into the saddles, the boots, uh, the headpieces for the horse, that really shows in everything that I do in La Bagatelle. And something quite interesting, a lot of people who work in fashion have been uh, are, are into horses. And I really think right. that um, sense of quality, because you know it has to be good craftsmanship, otherwise it doesn't work on a horse. That is something that people in fashion really can relate to, and it's instilled in you at a young age. So for me, the the horses, the nature, the going horseback riding or, um, in the fields and in the forest, for sure, that matters. Yeah. And, and in terms of fashion influences, so if horse riding was one of them, mm -hmm. um, uh, what about your mother as, like, your female icon? Was she a source of fashion inspiration for you? My mum... It's brilliant in the sense that, uh, in, in every sense, but my mom really, um, my mom and my grandmother, they wrote, both really appreciate fashion. Um, so it was always like the dressing up and looking the part. And my mom will always, you know, before dinner, make sure she looks nice in her clothes and her makeup is perfect. And so that whole um, making an effort definitely comes from the strong female um, people like my mom. So for mom, my mom, it's the looking the part and, and dressing up and making an effort uh, that she still expects from all of us, which is great. And my daughters love whenever she's around because then they have to put on their nice clothes. Um, <laughs> but, and for me, it was very much the, the understanding of proportions. And I think if you speak to children, they naturally understand proportions. They naturally, children will naturally know whether something looks good on you. And there's a big difference between fashion or something looking good at you. Because, you know, we all know that there's something that's that's fashionable and it's cool and it's great and it's maybe a little avant-garde. And we all kind of know that it's for some and it's it's not for all. And sometimes we do we buy it because we can't resist the temptation because it because it's cool. But it won't necessarily suit the, the kind of body type you have. I often yeah. think that um that children will understand naturally the type of 
proportions to type and what will look good on you. And I think I had that from an early age. And I, my mother was great in the sense that she recognized that. So she would always ask me, do you think I look nice in this? Yeah. Um, which of course made me feel very special. Uh, and, and it kind of, she, that I grew from that. I grew from that attention. And I do the same with my daughters now. I ask them, you know, do you think that this looks nice and blah, blah, blah. And um, I don't ask them if I look fat in anything. I never do. <laughs> but on a scale, I hope. Um, but um, but I, I think children naturally understand whether something suits someone. And I think you you that's an um, that's a talent we're born with. And you can build on it. You If you... If you encourage children to grow, to to um to build, you, which is what has happened with me, you can really make something out of it. Or you know, if you don't ask it, if you don't um, show an interest, it it will die. Yeah. But I that's uh, really, that's something. It's like you can encourage children to use their eyes. You know, if they spot that oh you had your hair cut, you say oh you always notice I have my hair cut, and then that the child will feel special in that way, and it will think oh I have this I have this ability to notice. And to notice things. And I, I think that was one of the things that my parents did for me was to encourage me um, to use my eyes. And mm. I, I think the beauty of children is always that, that their honesty is pure, isn't it? It's, it's, it's never meant to be offensive. It is just, it's, it's a pure dictation of what they can see um, and what they observe. Yeah, I remember my youngest was lying in bed one day and she said, Mom, what are those lines you have in your forehead? <laughs> That's from you keeping me up at night. <laughs> Going back to your mum, I'm interested to understand this sense of like, you know, dressing proper. Um, I, I read somewhere and it was written in Danish, so I, forgive me if I've mistranslated it, but uh, she says that when you go to visit her, she expects you to be wearing a nice sweater and to come with a funny story. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. It doesn't have to be a nice sweater, but you, ha you have to, yeah, you have to look. You have to look the part. You have to, um, she hates it. I mean, you, my mom is not the kind of person you turn up hungover, tired, and, and, uh, and not feeling your best. Of course that happens. I mean, I'm not saying I'm a saint and I'm not saying she's, you know, she's a monster, but, um, <laughs> very old fashioned, but it is the sense of making an effort. Uh, you know, there are some parents that love it when their children come and they sleep on the couch and, you know, they nurture and mother them. She's not like that. She expects, she makes an effort. So she expects others to make an effort. And, uh, and I think that's, um, I love that. I love the fact. Is it, is it a sign of respect for her? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. and I, I, and it's also, she doesn't want to be bored. You know, she doesn't want people to turn up. She, you know, it's like when she has guests, she makes sure the house looks nice and there are flowers in the vases and it's clean. And, you know, she, she's done the shopping. My dad cooks, but she's probably yeah. done the thing. So when she's made an effort, she wants other people to make an effort too. And, yeah. you know, as younger, I was always curious that that's not necessarily how it was at my friend's house. But I, I'm, I'm beginning to think that I will be a little bit like that too. When my <laughs> my daughters leave, that they you know, I, I it's what it's why it's so important we go to the beginning, <laughs> the beginning of the story. So so growing up, then obviously you know fashion was was something that was um, respected in your household. It was something that 
was revered uh, and you had exposure to it. But mm-hmm. as you said, I, like my understanding is that the the Danish fashion industries obviously come into the fore um, over the last few years. You know, there's a lot more visibility to it. Copenhagen Fashion Week is a, a lot higher on the map of fashion weeks and has a lot more visibility in terms of social media. But I would imagine that it wasn't necessarily like that for you growing up, um, that sense of that industry being as prominent on the international scale. What what was it like for you? Um, well, one of the things that my parents did um, that was really important to what I ended up doing was that they always bought the fashion magazines for me. And... Right. Uh, and I thought the magazines were absolutely amazing. The whole, that that world of beauty, aesthetics, of dreams. Um, I loved that. And so at a very early age, I knew that I wanted to be an ed- editor of a magazine. And I think that there was there was a Danish magazine called Elfadeimane, which was everything for the women. And it really was everything from the sex column to uh, uh, cooking recipes and to lots and lots of fashion and magic. And I think uh, that's one of the good things about social media, and uh, that kind of magic is available for everyone uh, for free if they want it. Um, so I, but then I, I wanted to be an editor and I studied history in, uh, in London because I thought that was, it was, it was good to have some kind of uh, academic background when you started writing. Um, and then I moved back to Denmark, I was 26, and the, really the fashion journalism here was pretty non-existent. There were a few really excellent, um, more mature writers, a little older than me, but they did really well. But there were like a few writers, very few writers here in Denmark who, did the, uh, the, the, who wrote for um, the um, newspapers. Uh, but there was a, like a, there started to be a scene and there were some excellent Danish designers, young designers, and no one really noticed them. So mm. I started doing, and I think it was definitely because I lived in England. So I knew about, you know, upcoming designers and the, the scene in London was just happening then. It was, this was in the early nineties. Um, so I started doing some of the interviews with the, the first, um, Danish designers that when they were coming out then. Yeah. Found third garden. Yeah. There were like a, a, a few of them, and so I became I, I became part of that scene, and, yeah. and you know it just takes a few. You can actually create something, and so we I think it was that that's when Danish fashion started to really become the kind of thing it is now. That was the beginning of it because mm. Danish designers and you had uh, Day and Biomelina Buer. What they did, which was which has been the, the special niche of, um, of Danish fashion is that Danish women are very practical, but they like to look good at the same time. And we're not, um, you know, sometimes if you, when you go to Paris, it's like it's not within your reach. The kind of sophistication, the kind of elegance is almost... At least if you're Danish, you don't think that, okay, if only I, if I wore that makeup, if I wore those heels, if I wore those clothes, I would look like that. You know you're not going to because you're not French. You don't have the, that special thing they're born with. <laughs> and if you go to New York, you know that even if you went to the hairdressers every day, you would never have that kind of super conditioned hair. And it's, it's like, but what Danes do, 
we get up in the morning and, and you know, you, you go to school, you, you get on a bike and you take your kids to kindergarten and then you have to go to your studies or, or your work. And then you want to meet some girlfriends in the afternoon or a date. And, you know, it's like, and you don't go home and change because it's like you don't have the time. So basically, Danes get up in the morning and you wear, we wear the same thing all, all day. And we pr probably have to get from A to B to Z to Z um, in the same kind of outfit. So we yeah. like things that are that are cool and elegant and practical. And I yeah. think a lot of women can actually relate to that because let's face it, very few people look like French women do in Paris. Even <laughs> French in Paris don't look like Paris. So I yeah. think that that became a niche where people can relate because Danish fashion mm -hmm. and Dan Danish women are very... Um, we're pretty honest about how we live and what our limitations are, but we still want it all. And I think that's the 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 dream of that is what Danish fashion can give you. That you can pretty, you can look pretty good in the morning and still wear the same thing and go for a date in the evening and look great and get away with it. I, and I would say that, like, I mean, coming from Sydney, Australia, and and you know that 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 sense of practicality and ease is really critical to the way that um, a lot of our designers work. And I think that's one of the reasons, you know, a, a label like Basic, uh, which you'd be aware of, has been so popular is because there's a real ease in the ability to wear it but still look chic because we are going through all those same iterations through our day, you know. Um and and I wondered, like, is that is is that what do you think that that lifestyle uh, has been one of the reasons why Danish style in terms of fashion has been more popular of late? Because people relate to that lifestyle more than they relate to heels with a croissant and a scarf in Paris. <laughs> oh, and I mean, this was in the nineties, so it's like. 20 years ago that it started, that that was the realization that that we don't drive around in limousines and and um, and we don't have endless hours to spend in a spa. Um, so I think that, the you know, you're talking about it in Sydney and I'm talking about it in Copenhagen. So it's a universal feeling that we want to look good, but we still have a life. So how yeah. do you, you wear something that's that's uh, in one way practical, but another way a little gives you a little glitter, a little bit of shine. Um, so I think that was that's the beginning of, of of Danish fashion, Copenhagen fashion, finding its niche. And and I think for sure that um, Copenhagen has been um, lucky in the sense that we have some beautiful girls who've done really well on Instagram. So they've been really good promoting uh, what's like the whole Copenhagen. Yeah. And then, of course, we've got some excellent designers like Gani, who, who are doing amazingly well, promoting that kind of attitude of life. Yeah. In terms of you, you've had a mammoth career, having, you know, as I said, worked for Elle magazine at a very young age, um, worked for costume and starting your own fashion magazine cover. Uh, how... How responsible did you feel in all those iterations of your roles in publishing to um, represent the Danish woman in a certain way? 
Oh, I, I had a pretty strong idea about that the whole time. <laughs> yeah. For me, um, for me, it was it was a number of things. It was it was showing Danish fashion um, from the beginning. I mean, I think it's fine. We have French. We have uh, Vogue Paris. They can show Chanel. We don't have to. It's great if we do, and I think it's great that you mix um, Danish fashion with. Balenciaga or Chanel or Celine or whatever, but you have to have you have to show you have to show the designers you come where you come from. You have to show that innate sense of um, where you originate from. Of course, you can only do that if the design is good enough. And I was lucky enough to be part of a generation where they actually did excellent abroad. So that was one of the things. Another thing was the the kind of woman that we portrayed. Um, I'm very interested in talent. I think talent is super inspiring. I think that's kind of a reason to get up in the morning. If you're depressed, you think, okay, but there are all these amazing young people out there and they really need someone to show, to shine some light on them. And we always, the people I work with, we've always seen that as a responsibility that we didn't take lightly, but it was also the reason it was so much fun. So talent for sure. And then the stars, you know, the, and I think if you speak to women who've made it, and it doesn't matter if they're in their 50s or 60s or 80s or 20s, people who've made it are super interesting. So it was always that mix of the talent with the scene. And what about your style? Like, because obviously there was an agenda there about profiling, you know, your country and, and making it aspirational against the kind of international market. And as you said, the balance between emerging talent and established talent. But in terms of your style and the aesthetic of the publications you work for, how did those two things come together for you? Um, are you thinking of La Bacatelle or just the, how my style? Oh, I, I just, you know, because I feel like any creative, no matter what title they might work for or um, who they might design for, as a stylist who you style for, there's still your handprint mm. in the work that you do. So I guess I'm asking that. What's your, what's your handprint aesthetically? Well, I think it's a combination of, you know, it's like it's everything you see on your way. And I, I think that's why it's important that you um, encourage children to use their eyes. So for me, it was a, the mix of... Um, You know the craftsmanship, like I was talking about before, the craftsmanship in horse riding, the love of the love of something done well, um, and then the mix of England in the eighties, which was like they really perfected the art of the navy pullover made in Kashmir, <laughs> and the greens, the dark greens, the Bordeaux. I mean, I came from Denmark, it was all about neon colours. And then I arrived in 88 in England, 1988, and it was like navy, dark green, border. But that, the quality about that stays with you. The fact that some things just last, that all of a sudden I felt silly in my pink, bright pink neon jump, jumper. And I kind of longed for that, that had that kind of sustainability about it. The cut, that some things just are more classy than others. They just look better than I did in my, my bright neon, whatever. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, I studied in London in the 90s where it was all about, you know, 
English fashion at the time was totally amazing and it was like all like dark and scaled down and you know anything but flashy and then Rick Owens and and the Moilemist and that whole scene that came um so that that you know people always say that you know you it's from your youth that it all happens but for me it was definitely the fact that you didn't want to be flashy um and I still don't like things that are overtly flashy um mm-hmm. and and the sense of quality so yeah those things yeah I think and then and then actually if you mix in with all of that a lot of traveling a lot of seeing things that are like so different to anything that's if you go to india the colors the workmanship uh, compared to the public displays of colors here and i think that that so so traveling for sure has also made a difference but i think it's it's all the little things you pick up that resonate with you and for me it's certainly it's um for sure it's it's a certain color palette that's the the um, the, the blacks and the grays and the like the navy and then all the pastels those are my favorites yeah so um i want to get into color especially because copenhagen fashion week has just taken place and there was a lot of color <laughs> um but the i in terms of copenhagen fashion week it is uh obviously we've just we've discussed how it's kind of come to the fore more on the international scene over the last like five years but uh it, it's its main tenant is around sustainability and whilst this is a, like a bit of a buzzword in the fashion industry in terms of you know everybody having a sense of responsibility to that agenda uh, you guys are are really leading the charge in that um and i want to understand why um what that says about being from Copenhagen and the industry that there's so much responsibility and that that even though you are a smaller country and a smaller city that you guys are driving the innovation and the leadership around um those practices um well i think it's uh, a combination of two things i think it's that we had some um have a woman called Eva Kulsen who was head of the fashion summit um a sustainable fashion summit for for quite some years now um and they re- there've been people here who really made sure um to put sustainability on the the agenda constantly and i think way before like mass media or way before uh, like the average person on the street or the average fashion designer thought of it so that's one thing another thing is that you know I think if you're Danish you you have a sense of um things need to have a purpose that um that you uh you want to do good you want to do good by yourself but by your elders and by your friends and by the people in the street uh you know it's a very social democratic country uh so so it's it would be totally impossible to be in the fashion industry and and not be acutely aware of how important sustainability needs to be because there there is generally a sense of social consciousness to everything you do that's instilled in us but also because it's like you know it look at the headlines in the in the, in the media every day it's all about that it's 
Is it too late? And that, yes. that if it's if it's just about too late, then um, how can you even do clothes? How can you even uh, uh, consume or how can you not just uh, open up the cupboard you have and, and wear whatever you're wearing? Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're going to do something else, if you're going to produce more, make sure you have to absolutely be sure that you you do it um, in the best possible way. That you don't- Is there produce is there any inherent care for the land that heralds back to you know that sense of freedom and and you know connection to nature that we were talking about before of course i think it's um i think i think it's um for the love of the world that we live in and yes denmark is part of that but i think it's just as much that it's you know you read about pollution everywhere else and we all know that the fashion industry is is one of the most uh is one of the industries in the world that pollutes the most so if we're all if we all want to stay in this industry we have to do better mm. um, and i think it's impossible and i think it, it will be within the next few years it will be possible to to be in the fashion industry anywhere in the world not take this very seriously but for sure, um, Copenhagen fashion, or the the whole the whole the running of the Copenhagen fashion industry is, is acutely aware that that this has to be done differently. In terms of um, the fashion week, uh, so obviously sustainability is a, a core kind of program, the inherent in all of the shows. Uh, what other messages would you say came out of the shows this year, especially relating to, you know, this global pandemic that we're all experiencing? Well, I think that there was, um, I think that there was a sense that it, it was a relief, relief to see everyone again and, and to be out and actually yeah. enjoy um, life, fashion, people music but there was also a real uh before and after you know it was one of the fashion weeks that if you missed it you you and you know if you've been ill the whole week and you hadn't read any magazines or newspapers or been on instagram or anything you really wouldn't realize that something drastically is different like the the skinny blonde blue-eyed girl is pretty much gone you know it's like diversity is is not um it's not just a buzzword, it's the thing, you know, and, and yeah. I think that was totally liberating. It was totally liberating to see that the, that the world has changed, that we, we might have spent a lot of time at home within the past year and a half, but people have reflected and people have changed. And I think that uh, life has changed. And I think that, you know, some people say, oh, I don't think anything's changed after Corona. It's the whole thing. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. We're busy. But for me, I think everything has changed, actually. I think, yeah, I still drive my children to school and I still, you know, go to work. And so in that sense, the framework hasn't changed. But the mindset has changed. I think that it gave us space to um, to feel things again. I think for a long time, personally, I was so busy, uh, mm. busy being busy. 
and you know if ever anyone wanted a meeting with me of course yes 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 they could have a meeting if someone needed my advice of course i could meet them and of course i could attend that dinner and of course i could uh, attend that reception and of course i could do drinks and of course i could do and i i think i had come i'd gone over my own limits way past my own limits and i'd done it for so long that i i couldn't sense i couldn't feel that that was way too much for me it was way too much exposure um and it the break was needed in a sense to feel okay so what how do how do i feel what, what what do i need not that what everyone else needs but what do i my question was was la, la bagatelle born out of that process of resetting re-evaluating what was important to yeah, you for sure um i never done it with break i never would have had the time um i started before uh, no after our first lockdown i um i started writing a book about aesthetics and in january i was so it's it's only it's very recent but in in january i was um sitting writing that book and it was pretty dark and it was pretty gray and it really was it was affecting all the dark shades of gray you know that month and uh, it felt like every time i took a break from the writing i was like okay but if i did a collection if i did because i was i was really bored with fashion at the time you know every time i went to instagram everyone was wearing sweatpants and I think gray sweatpants looks really good on young girls and they could look really good on Lauren Hudden, but all the rest of us should just forget about it, you know? <laughs> so I was saying, I thought it was, fashion was really dull. And, um, and then I started dreaming, okay, so what would I ideally love to wear? And I, and I started looking at fabrics and, and it, it just, it was literally just like a hobby. You know, it wasn't okay. I'm going to start out a brand. I'm going to I'm going to be a designer. It wasn't like that at all. It was just sitting, thinking, okay, if I should do a shirt for me, so I had something to wear that I would actually love to wear. And that's how it started. And then I I was looking for a tailor, and then I got all these tailors in, and so that's how it started. It was to do something that felt luxurious, comfortable, that I would want to wear all the time. Um, and it was. And it wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have had the kind of the space, uh, the break, the the to have the creative freedom to to think. Okay, I'll just do it if yeah. it had lockdown. In within your your brand, you know, there there's this this kind of sense of an art of collecting. Um, you know, the, these beautiful vintage fabrics. What what does that what does that say about the signature of the brand well um i think it's a, well that is the that's basically that is the brand it's a, something you you buy you wear it again and again so it kind of becomes a part of you it's something it's definitely not something that you buy to wear once um and to throw away or not wear again, that would be such a shame because you've had a tailor sit and and actually sew it. So it, every single piece is tailor made. And you, I, I find the, the fabrics, some 
in France, some in Japan, some in China, um, and some are vintage, not that they've been sewn in before, but some are like big pieces that are, or rolls of, of Japanese silk that no, that's never been touched. And some, of course, are new fabrics. I, I have a silk velvet that comes in from France. I have silk that comes from London, and I have a lot of um, Japanese and Indian cotton, for instance. But it's that 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 if you put so much love and attention into something, and if you make it right, so the proportions are right, you will wear it again and again. And coming back to the sustainable approach, that is the most sustainable thing you can do. Because if you look at nature, you know, even the animals, they try and make themselves look nice for each other. We have that inherent in us. So we're not going to stop doing we're not going to stop trying to inspire ourselves and others by how we dress. So, but let's, so instead of buying lots, buy less, but buy the nice stuff. And that's, that's uh, what Le Bagatelle is. And it's, it's basically putting, you know, I, I, I love art and I read a lot and I love going out for dinner. And, and it's basically, if you mix that whole cosmopolitan life with a lot of art in it, you have Le Bagatelle. It also sounds like it, it inherently pays respect to the clothes and the image, the way that your mother would like to uphold it. <laughs> um, no, I was so scared when she she wouldn't like it, but she likes it, so that's good. <laughs> and you you said it. I think the catchphrase with the the brand is um, standing out while you you while you fit in. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, it was something I wrote. It wasn't meant to be uh, the catch, but it's. Uh, but I think it's pretty right. I mean, we all want to stand out, but we want to. We don't want to be a peacock. We we want to. We want people to notice us, but not because. We want people to notice us because we're special, but we don't want to, like. We all know the feeling of when you wear wearing something that feels just right to the occasion, and we all know the feeling of oh, I shouldn't have worn that, and yeah. I think is is special because I really do believe that you feel right in your own skin when you're wearing it and it's not it's because of the cut that's uh supreme it's it's elegant but it's also made by by a craftsmanship who really know what they're doing and then the fabrics are so great and and it that it feels like second skin yeah and so you know every 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 piece is kind of like a treasure. So you can you can um, mix it in with new stuff or old stuff that you have in your cupboard, and it will add something, but it won't take over your entire wardrobe. It sounds like it perfectly sums up the Danish woman that you have spoken about throughout <laughs> this conversation. It's practical. It's understated, uh, but. It's it's always looking to represent in a in a in a chic way. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, my last question to you, Maylin, is: um, I, This is how I've been finishing these conversations. Given that you've been have you've had the chance to step out, and I'm sitting here in lockdown. What what was you know over the last few weeks where it's been summer and fashion week and the parties that you might have gone to, what's been the thing that you were really excited about wearing? About wearing? Yes. <laughs> I want to wear the whole time. You know that's the great thing about um, about working with tailors is that you can get an idea and then next week you have it. 
Uh, I went to a wedding um, three weeks ago, a, a dear friends of mine who got married finally. And uh, I had a, a jacket made out of an old, a hundred year old Indian um, uh, blanket. So it was like beautiful reddish and then a silk velvet dress. And then I actually had this uh, vest made for the reception in the church. So it's so, but it, but it, so that was special because it was like a celebration of love, and it was all my friends were there, and it was like I'd made something that I thought was beautiful. Um, but I think uh, I what I really love, I really love sitting in my cafe in the morning and having you know my tea and reading my book in the street, and you know there's a reason for dressing up because you're out. Yeah. Uh, I love that. I love the, you know, it's like the little things. It's seeing people in the street. It's like the bumping into people that uh, you know, but you didn't expect to see. It's that kind of life is lovely to have back. Yeah. Uh, the mornings, though, where we could sleep a little longer. <laughs> <laughs> but I get up now at six o'clock in the morning and it's all dark. I miss the lockdown. <laughs> Well, coming from lockdown, I I I, I missed uh, wearing yeah. clothes outside for a reason <laughs> rather than just going for a walk. Um, Maylene, thank you so much for so generously giving me so much of your time and energy today, um, and I look forward to seeing more of your beautiful brand. If you like style stories but are looking for a little more connection please come and join Style Stories The Circle, a Facebook group I've created to provide a community-minded space where you can discuss the latest episodes, get social, and share your style and your stories.